Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown, and I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer, and today on The Breakdown, we welcome back a woman who has helped shape the state's political landscape for years, and who's returning to the Capitol this week as Governor Gavin Newsom's chief of staff. That's right, Dana Williamson is here. Last time she was on The Breakdown, it was 2018. She was a top aide to former Governor Jerry Brown, and now she's been running her own political consulting firm for the past several years. So today we're going to talk to her on her third day on the job, helping lead Newsom's office. But first, Scott, we can't ignore the bad week Kevin McCarthy is having in Washington, D.C. As we tape this on Thursday afternoon, the House of Representatives is finishing its 10th vote for speaker. And once again, McCarthy not only fell short of the 218, (laughs) but also of uh, the number that the Democratic minority leader, you know, is going to have. And, you know, what's interesting about this is is Obviously, the failure of Republicans to coalesce around him has, you know, sparked a lot of coverage kind of looking back at his career and, of course, which started in Sacramento. And in some ways, when you look back at it and sort of how he's always gone where the wind blows, it feels like a disaster of his own making. Oh, totally. And, you know, you think about election night and that champagne that he had on chill, you know, ready to celebrate the red wave. I mean, you know, a lot of the reason that never happened is that the Republican Party embraced some really extreme candidates, not just for Congress, but certainly that. That tainted, I think, the party's image, and it hurt candidates uh, who were running for the House. Uh, and, you know, you reap what you sow. Right. This is something that McCarthy has been fomenting for years. Uh, you go back to even when Obama was president, all the talk about his being born in Kenya and, you know, whether or not uh, he even, you know, was born in Hawaii and all that stuff, whether he was a Muslim. And the Republican leadership was quiet. They were silent. You know, they allowed those voices to elevate, to amplify. And it's all coming home to roost right now. And it reminds me actually of Israel, oddly enough, where you have, you know, this fringe Republican, uh, fringe religious party in the case of Netanyahu, you know, the tail wagging the dog, these really extreme parts of the elect uh, of the of the system that are now dictating who gets what and and under what terms. And that's the irony here, right? One 
ironic because part of the reason McCarthy doesn't have the majority he wanted, you could argue, is because of these more extreme right wing candidates and their losses in some cases or overcoming moderate that would have been supporting him. And then the second thing is that they are still a minority within this caucus. And so even if they get whatever they want, which is not entirely clear what they want for the speaker, who do they think is going to come along for some of the more extreme policy ideas, right? Yeah. I mean, they don't have the votes. No. It's kind of wild. Yeah, it is wild. And, you know, I, th- I think it's pretty clear, and it has been clear for some time, that they're in, in some ways inherently an opposition party. Right. You know, they're better at saying no. They're better at criticizing. Uh, I mean, how many times did they vote to undo Obamacare when they had control of the House? 50, 60 times? Knowing that, that it really wouldn't, you know, go anywhere. And, you know, even if, you know, this will get worked out eventually one way or another, and unless there is some agreement not to have hearings and have a moderate speaker, uh, you're going to see hearings on, you know, the border and on the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, all these things that voters don't care about. Don't forget Hunter Biden. And Hunter Biden, of course, that laptop. Um, You know, and so it's, as I said, they've made the bed and they're laying in it now, and it's going to be hard to, hard to sleep i think right and so i do think though you know to what to what does this matter to the american people i mean there's a few areas one is like what happens actually if they can find a speaker and swear everyone in and start doing their job. The other is if they can't and this drags on for days or weeks or months. I mean, that has real implications both to the people within Congress. They're not getting paid. Their staffs aren't getting paid. But, you know, they don't have access to the skiff to all these documents if you're on, you know, all of these oversight committees because they're not actually members of Congress yet. Right. And even, you know, even if once it all gets settled out, they still have to pass a budget. They still have to raise the debt ceiling. You know, crises come along, you know, COVID, 9-11. I mean, there are things where the government has to function. It's not just performative. It's not just who can get on Fox News and get the most Twitter retweets and likes and all that. And unfortunately, there is, you know, a, a, a group of folks, most of them are voting against McCarthy or Many of them are. There's others uh, who really don't care about governing. They don't really blowing up the boxes to quote Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, you know, is really the point. You know, they really want to sow the chaos and to, uh, you know, to what end? It's not clear to me, uh, but it's it's not a good look. Yeah. Very nihilistic. Not, not often we get to use that word. No. So. And, and, <laughs> not a good thing. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Dana Williamson. We can talk to her about how, you know, this is making Sacramento look very functional. <laughs> they have a speaker. <laughs> Dana is the new top aide to Governor Gavin Newsom. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. 
Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are thrilled for our first show of the new year to welcome back Dana Williamson. She's one of California's top political strategists, a former cabinet secretary to former Governor Gavin or Jerry Brown. And now she's the chief of staff to Governor Gavin Newsom. Dana, welcome back to The Breakdown. Well, thank you. How are you guys? Good. Good. Happy to have you on here. And uh, I guess we got to just ask, like, what's what's it feel to be back? You've been uh, out in the wild for a couple of years doing political consulting. Is it nice to be back in the bosom of government? <laughs> a lot of metaphors um, in there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to impact that for a minute. Um, I Yeah. I mean, I'm on day three. So what have you learned? <laughs> What have I learned? I've learned that, um, you know, some of the issues that have been around for a few years are still around, um, that there's new ones. And um, but, yeah, I'm excited to be back. Was it a case of really wanting to go back? Uh, you know, you're, <laughs> you've had there have been a few of your predecessors have left. Uh, Anna Leary uh, and Jim uh, Debu, you know, gone. I mean, was it a case of like the governor calling to say, look, Dana, I really need you to come back? Or, you know, are you kind of happy to be there? Or is it mixed? Um, well, you know, it's funny. It, it's a little mixed but because I had my own evolution of thought about this. I think, you know, when I left Governor Brown's administration, it was, you know, before he was finished. I left at the in the middle of 2016. Um, at the time, um, my boys uh, were in middle school and high school. And, you know, there was just a lot of family stuff going on. And I felt like I needed to go focus more on that for a while. Um and now, you know, the boys are in college and my daughter Grace is 10. And um, so I have a different home life than I did back then. And um, the truth is, you know, when he called me and we talked, um, I think if you had asked me prior, I would have been like, no way would I go back in. You know, these jobs are hard. They, it's a lot of hours. Um, and then I really thought about it. And the truth is, you know, there's it, it is a very rare opportunity to be able to do this kind of work and to really help, you know, shape policies um, and, you know, strategies that live on for years and years and years. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of this for a long time. I had five campaigns this last cycle, so I've been on both sides of it. But for me, this was a moment of, um, you know, I don't want to look back and say, I wish I would have done it. So um, I kind of just shift my thinking and now I'm really excited about it. Now you're here. Um, well, before we now move on to to the nitty gritty, I mean, you mentioned your kids. You have four of them. Were they supportive of this? Like they, you know what it's like to do this job. <laughs> um, your ten year old may not remember. She does not remember. So it was really an interesting conversation with all of them because the boys are only two years apart, and two of them were born in Virginia when I lived in D.C. for six years. Um, they really grew up with me having a very busy work life. Um, Grace, however, you know, we had two years of, you know, COVID. I had my own business, so I was really able to work from home. Um, is just completely unfamiliar with the concept, despite the fact that I was pregnant with her when I went to work for Jay Brown. She doesn't um, remember that. <laughs> she doesn't remember it. I mean, she remembers some of the fun stuff. She certainly remembers Sutter Brown, um, but she's all about the dogs. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she didn't know. And her first question was, Mom, does that mean you're not going to be home with me the same and and that was hard and i said yes except i'm still going to take you to school in the morning um and grandma's going to pick you up and um you know and this governor has his own kids so you know he likes to get home to his kids too and so it's something that i'm gonna you know work through so that she has that 
sort of continuity. Um, but then, and like, and this actually made me tear up, to be honest. She said, Mommy, I'm so proud of you. Oh. I always knew you were a leader. Aww. And it was like, okay, so this <laughs> yeah. is going to be okay. <laughs> so, no, and so showing them. Like, yeah, that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. So what, kind, what, what is the job and what do you think it is? And what, what does Gavin Newsom think it is? <laughs> Um, you know, you guys have seen lots of iterations of governor's office staff over the years. Um, there was very traditionally always been a chief of staff and a cabinet secretary and then a ledge secretary and a legal secretary. And, you know, within that, there's, you know, a comms director and press, you know, there, there's this sort of core makeup of a team. Um, governor Brown was a little different. He sort of resurrected the executive secretary title, um, you know, hearkening back to when he was governor the first time. Um, I came in as a senior advisor, became cabinet secretary because he was a little reluctant to use it. Um, governor Newsom's a little bit more, you know, traditional and in, in sort of the way it's been in the past. Um, so, uh, you know, chief of staff is, you know, basically everybody now reports to me. Um, and, but I will say there's a really good team here. Um, and even in the first few days, everyone's working really well together, um, which I love. I like, you know, I have a very collaborative style and, um, and you know, it's been actually kind of an easy transition in. That's great. I mean, I do want to ask, because there was some tension between your predecessors and the chief or executive secretary, whatever you want to call it, the top role, and the governor's <laughs> yeah. former number two, uh, cabinet secretary Ana Montesantos. She's since left. She's being re- uh, replaced by Analia Patterson. I'm just curious, like, what your relationship is like with Patterson, and, and do you think this change could result, you know, in a, in a better, more well-oiled office? Listen, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I thought after working under Jerry Brown, given the budget deficits we had and some of the challenges that that was a tough administration, I cannot imagine how hard it must have been the first year of the pandemic. Mm. Um, So, you know, you guys have alluded to personalities. You know, I'm sure there was some of that, but I also think they were under a tremendous amount of stress Mm. and not, you know, everything was new. Like there was not a playbook for this kind of situation. And so, you know, and then, you know, then there's a recall and that puts pressure on your boss. And I think that over time, like he's, you know, he's now survived a recall, survived a pandemic, um, got reelected. And and so to me, this is sort of like, okay, now we get to, now we get to move forward. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's really exciting. Yeah. I wonder like, what your relationship with the governor is. I mean, is it, you know, a lot of people who work for powerful politicians are very deferential, you know, and they call them by their their title as opposed to their first name. And, and we know you, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> well, and sometimes you need some, I mean, everybody, everybody in those positions needs somebody to say, um, governor, you got some lettuce in your teeth or, you know, something, say something that, you know, no one else is willing to say, but needs to be said. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Marisa sort of made a little quip about this. I am not known for um, being deferential um, <laughs> or shy um, or unwilling to speak truth to power. And um, I actually think he really appreciates that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I do think that when you are in these positions of power and, you you know, you it, it is human nature for folks to be deferential, but... You know, I think that Governor Newsom really likes 
getting the best product out of, you know, the work we do. And, and that requires people to be able to be honest. And I, you know, and I expect that from like our entire team. I want them to be honest with me. I want to be able to honest with them. And it needs to be in a space where we're all rowing in the same direction and wanting, you know, the best outcome. I mean, so, I don't think he would have asked. Yeah. And, I, and he... I mean, you knew what he was getting. Yeah, he knew what he was getting. You guys have had a relationship <laughs> oh, yeah, prior I mean, to this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This I'm, is no secret. <laughs> I'm curious, though, you know, one thing we hear in the building and as reporters is grumbling sometimes by lawmakers that they haven't had as good of a relationship maybe with the governor's office as his predecessors or as much communication. Do you think there needs to be any changes made to the way the governor's office sort of interfaces with the legislative branch? Um. I, you know what? I actually think there, we have a really great ledge team, and and I'll harken back. And again, I haven't heard that same that same criticism, but I um, I, I can imagine communication in general was difficult during COVID, especially since everyone was working remotely, and you don't get in rooms together and hammer things out and all of that. Um, but the truth is, we you know when I worked for Governor Brown, I heard the same kind of chatter. Hmm. Right. And and so and now you will hear the opposite of that. And so I wonder if a little bit of it is sort of, you know, in the moment, this is what this feels like. And it felt like that then, too. But now that I'm away from it, it's different. Um, so, I, you know, I, but if there needs to be changes, we'll make changes. I mean, we I this is a group of folks who, you know, we all plan on communicating as best we can with as many people as we can. Yeah. You, uh, of course, previously in your career worked in the private sector. You were director of public affairs for PG&E, for example. And I'm just wondering, you know, how does that time working outside government in an industry that's highly regulated by government, how did that affect the way you see government? Um, That's a really interesting question. Um, Yeah, I've had a very um, eclectic career. worked at Planned Parenthood and, you know, I worked at PG&E and I, so I've had sort of a little bit of a taste of a bunch of different sectors and it's helped me in general. Um, I, you know, it, it, a lot of times you'll be sitting with a group of folks who's regulating and you're like, I'll be able to say, well, that's not actually how they think or approach the problem. And so I think it is helpful to have that perspective because, you know, every, I, corporations that are out there that that aren't regulated operate a certain way ones that are regulated operate a certain way nonprofits are very different too and so yeah it's it's really helpful to have that sort of perspective and maybe think of problems differently you are listening to political breakdown from kqed public radio i'm marisa lagos here with scott schaefer our guest today is newsom's new chief of staff dana williamson well dana let's get into what's ahead so the governor's inauguration is tomorrow and it's no accident from the way y'all have talked about it that it's occurring on january 6th the second anniversary on the attack on the capitol how is that going to figure into what happens tomorrow the ceremony and, and this march that the governor has planned yeah, I think, um, you know, California is always will be unique. And, you know, a lot of the country follows us in a lot of ways. And you've seen a certain segment of the political universe really sort of co-opt freedom in a way that isn't reflective of a lot of values, especially here that we have here in California. And, we, you know, we do democracy the way we do democracy. And we, you know, we celebrate people's backgrounds and 
try to learn from our mistakes. And I think, you know, what this really is about is sort of highlighting the uniqueness of California, but that we are proud of the democracy and the type of freedom that we live here and that we can all kind of, you know, stand together um, and not try to take over the Capitol. Um, <laughs> well, or take it over, you know, in a <laughs> appropriate way. <laughs> in an appropriate democratic way. Yeah. So, yes. Um, so I just think it's, you know, it's highlighting like being proud of who we are as Californians and, and the kind of values we have as a state. I, I've heard from somebody in the administration that this is going to be an unusually personal speech for the from the governor. And I'm wondering, you know, if you've been involved, if you've probably read some drafts. I mean, what uh, how would you characterize it? Um, yeah, I think it is going to be a different it's a different speech for Gavin Newsom than you've heard from them before. And, um, you know, I think any governor will tell you this going into a second term is different. You, you know, you reflect, you look forward. It's, you know, your head's in a different space than when you first start. And so I think you're going to hear a little bit about that. Interesting. Well, you know, this is a second term. As you said, the first one was sort of marked by a lot of unexpected turns, including a recall and a um, pandemic. And, you know, the governor's known for big policy initiatives, for big sort of sweeping announcements. But you've talked about how you see this as an opportunity to kind of put your collective heads down and implement the ambitious programs he's already laid out. So talk about that approach and like, what do you see as the top priorities there? I know you guys have to walk and chew gum, but it's got to be a couple that you, that like <laughs> bubble to the top, right? We try, we try to walk and chew gum, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, the, despite the pandemic and, and whatnot and all these, you know, ad, you know, adversities that the state's faced, I think, you know, we've been in a pretty good budget spot for the last four years. Um, this budget outlook is going to be different. Um, and I think, you know, going all the way back, I don't even know when we do Prop 102 in 2012. Um, it's the rainy day fund. Um, you know, the state has been is just in such a better position to weather these kinds of fiscal changes. Um, but I think, you know, the governor is going to want to continue to, you know, lean in on the things that have sort of been the core of his policy priorities, you know, education, housing, homelessness, climate, affordability. Um, and, you, you know, you've got to look at it a little differently with the fiscal outlook we have. But that's why you've seen in the past a lot of like one time spending versus like ongoing programs. And so, you know, I think it's going to be a lot of the same focus um, for me. Yes, there's definite opportunities, uh, you know, for things to to sort of get done um, and that I'm excited about that, especially because uh, I left early under Brown. There's, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, you can close out Um but he's also, you know, he's a guy who who has um, he has big ideas, and I'm and I guarantee there will be more of them. Well, and some <laughs> of the big ideas uh, are going to be implemented in this coming year yeah. or two, right? And I'm thinking, for example, of care courts, uh, which he thought about, which would compel uh, people into treatment for mental health uh, under a lot of you know certain circumstances with with guardrails and all that. It'll be implemented at the county level. Um, how? involved, even though this is going to be a county initiative, I'm sure the governor has a lot riding on it. How is he going to be involved? I mean, the governor, so this one's very exciting for me. Marisa knows I've done a ton of criminal justice stuff. So I love that we've gotten to a point as a state where we're really starting to dig in and implement some policies to make real change. It's very exciting to me. Um, 
But yeah, the governor, like, we're going to continue to be involved in that. Yes, it's it's done at a local level, but all of these things take partnerships. You can't have successful programs without, you know, the state, the counties and the cities, you know, at least attempting to row in the, the same direction on these things. So, so yeah, you're going to, I think you're going to see a lot of, uh, state local partnerships on particularly on care for well uh, partnerships might be how you guys characterize them but i think there's also been some pressure from from the governor and and his administration on the way counties deal with say housing and homelessness we saw the governor temporarily block a billion dollars in funding for homelessness because he said the local plans weren't bold enough that they weren't ambitious enough and we've also seen you know uh the state step in to investigate san francisco for its slow approval process for housing how much, like, what kind of conversations have you had with Newsom about that? Like the oversight function and the pressuring function to get some of these things done. And how do you kind of see that playing out this year? Um, I think the relationship, you know, I say partnerships, that's a very broad term, but you're right. You know, it, it is plays out in a, it, there's a, it's, um, how shall I say this? Uh, sometimes a tense family situation. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of money flowing from the state and you've got a governor who's making commitments to the voters of California that the money's going to certain things. And so, you know, you've got, it's an, it's a, an accountability mechanism. So, um, you know, you, and, and I, you, you'll see that like in the past, you know, where we, by law, um, if we pass a law here and we mandate a city or county to do something, the state pays for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always accountability measures in place. And I think this governor's just, you know, willing to kind of activate them. Yeah. Well, on <laughs> a different kind of accountability, the governor is really honing in on gas prices and oil refineries. He declared a special session of the legislature to come up with what was initially going to be a tax on excess profits. Now they're calling it a price gouging penalty. Um, what is that exactly? And how tough is that going to be to get through a legislature, which has a lot of new members? There's definitely a lot of new members. I mean, I think that the, um, you know, the hope is, is that we will work very closely with the legislature to get the policy right. Um, you know, gas is not something that is, is a luxury item for people. And, um, you know, we've seen these like crazy spikes and record profits. Um, and it's, there's just gotta be a way to like, you know, disincentivize that. And I, I would argue that the governor, even by him saying it, um, all of a sudden you started seeing gas prices kind of uh, stabilized. So, you know. Um, part of that was because of the move to the winter blend, right? Well, that was part of it. But even before that, um, when he's, you know, he started saying, I'm going to do this, you started seeing a little bit like uh, a little flattening of the rates. Yeah. Well, so. it- before we go, because we, we have only a few minutes left with you, the governor will also unveil his new budget next week. This is going yeah. to be very different than previous years, including last year when the state was pretty flush with cash. Um, I know the governor's really framed this as like, it's not going to be as painful as when you were last in the governor's office and we had those giant deficits. Um, why is that? Why could this, why could California weather this, you know, potential looming downturn better? And what do you kind of see as the main priorities of the budget potentially? Um, you know, I think it's a combination of things. Um, you know, we passed um, an initiative that, you know, requires money to go into a rainy day fund for exactly these kinds of moments. Um, and, 
There's other mechanisms for reserves. So it's a combination of those policies kicking in and the state being in a position to, you know, basically max out in those funds. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you fill up the rainy day fund, um, which seems very apropos for the lovely weather we're having. <laughs> but, um, you know, so, so that money is there. And I think the other thing that this governor has done is, you know, Knowing that this is inevitable, and I think anyone who becomes governor of California knows we are, you know, we are a state heavily dependent on capital gains taxes. When that money doesn't come in, we get this roller coaster ride. Um, So, you know, you know that coming in and you plan for it. And I think that they've done a lot to focus on programs, you know, when, when there's been an influx of cash that it's one time spending. So you don't end up with ongoing costs that you then cannot absorb in a situation like this. Um, under Brown, when this happened, none of that was in place. Yeah. It's, we, inter- it's interesting know, that he, you know, Jerry Brown and Gavin Newsom haven't always had the best relationship. And now <laughs> it's the prop two, which, uh, Jerry Brown pushed that may save his bacon a little bit. Um, yeah, it's funny having worked on that. Um, I've had a lot of people who didn't like it stakeholder wise back in the day who, um, have texted me and said that they're very grateful that it's here now. So, <clears throat> excuse me, with my cough. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just, I think the state's just in a better prepared space for, to weather this and, um, you know, and that's good. And I, it's funny to me because the, the, I never had a surplus budget, ever worked on a surplus budget. (laughs) (laughs) And the trend continues. I feel like I'm in very familiar territory. That is Dana Williamson. She is Governor Gavin Newsom's brand new chief of staff, third day on the job. Thank you for taking some time to speak with us, Dana. We'll be uh, watching. Thanks so much. Feel better. Excited to hear what happens. Yeah, and feel better. Don't yell too much at the uh, inauguration. I'll try not to. <laughs> okay. Thanks, you guys. Thank, Thank you, you, Dana. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers, Christopher Beal, our producer, Guy Marzarati. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you back here next week. Uh, maybe we'll have a house speaker by then. Maybe, maybe not. Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. 
That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 